Our text this afternoon is John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. This is the word of Almighty God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Will you pray with me, friends? Lord, now as we open your word, I pray that you'll set out of our minds all that would distract and put into our hearts a deep hunger to see you and know you and understand things that are beyond our minds, but which are beautiful to our souls. And I pray that in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Just who do you think you are? Have you ever been asked that question before? How many of you have been asked, who do you think you are sometime in your life? Yeah. How many of you have asked somebody that question before? Yeah. All right. Maybe, maybe you were trying to boss somebody around and they weren't having it. Maybe you were wanting to know a thing that somebody didn't think you should know. Maybe you wanted to do a thing that somebody didn't think you had the right to do. The question implies that you might just have a mistaken notion of your own greatness. Again, I'll ask, how many of you have ever had a mistaken notion of your own greatness? I believe several of you have a mistaken notion of my greatness. Um, I would suggest that just who do you think you are is the sort of question that the Jewish religious teachers were wanting to ask Jesus in John chapter 5. See, earlier in the chapter, the Savior healed a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. It was a great and kind work. It was a miracle. And when it was over, Jesus told the man to pick up his mat and go. As verse 9 tells us, that day was a Sabbath day. And when the Jewish religious teachers saw the man carrying his mat, they suggested he was violating the Jewish law. He was going against God. He he was doing work on the Sabbath. And the man told the religious teachers that Jesus, after healing him, had told him, carry his mat. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, of course, you know this, they had come up with for themselves a strict set of guidelines on the Sabbath. They knew God had commanded that people in Israel were not allowed to do work on the Sabbath, and the religious teachers, they weren't really satisfied with a simple command that says, don't work. So they, as we are often tempted to do, by the way, they developed a set of rules to define for people what forbidden work entails. 
They expanded the command of God. They added rules and strictness to the command which God never made, God never approved. I have heard it said that one of the rules that they had created was, you're only allowed to carry as much milk as one person could carry in their mouth. So if you had milk to carry that was more than a mouthful, you were working. I don't know where that came from, but that's the kind of rulesy living the Pharisees had developed. Well, as you can imagine, all this leads to a confrontation. The religious leaders want to challenge Jesus. How could this teacher tell a man to carry a little straw mat on the Sabbath? How could this man authorize a man to do what we have said is work on the Sabbath? Just who does he think he is? And that brings us to what we saw at the end of last week's message, John 5, verses 16 to 18. Look at this. This is important. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father's working until now, and I'm working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the teachers start off persecuting Jesus. Accusing him, confronting him, because he'd healed a man and told him to carry a straw mat on the Sabbath. But then Jesus responds by telling them that he has every right to make such a command because he is doing what God his Father does on the Sabbath. And the Jews understood rightly Jesus, in what he said in verse 17, was claiming God as his own Father. He was claiming equality with God He was claiming actually to personally be God. So the Jews went from persecuting Jesus in general to wanting to kill him for proclaiming deity. So now we pick up where we left off in John 5. And there's got to be a a question in mind here. Is Jesus really claiming to be God? If so, what do you do with that claim? Understand, if Jesus is actually claiming to be God, he's making a claim that we cannot ignore. You can't claim to be God and be okay unless you really are God. If anybody who is not God claims to be God, they're either evil, crazy, or both. How will Jesus respond? If Jesus doesn't, in fact, want to claim to be God, obviously what we're going to read is that, oh, no, guys, you've got me all wrong. But if Jesus is, in fact, claiming to be God, then he will make that plain as well. Today we're going to watch as Jesus reiterates that he is, in fact, telling us he is God And then we'll see several things that Jesus claims about himself that only God can claim. And finally, we'll hear exactly what we must do about it. In this, we'll take note of six points if you're the kind of person that writes those things down. Point number one, Jesus is one with the Father. Jesus is one with the Father. Look at verse 19. The beginning says, 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. When Jesus opens a statement with a double truly, we should pay attention. The Savior's about to tell us a thing that is solid, that's reliable, that's important. It might not always open the door to something earth-shaking, but you shouldn't let it pass you by. Here, the double truly opens for us a section of monologue from Jesus, a sermon from Jesus from verses 19 to 47. In, in a sense here, we have Jesus preaching about himself as the divine son of God. Jesus is going to claim to be God. He's going to tell us what that means. He's going to marshal evidence for the fact that he's God, like somebody calling witnesses to the stand in a courtroom. The Savior said, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now, if that sentence stood alone, with no other biblical teaching, with no other scripture, you might wonder, is he claiming deity or not? You might think Jesus is only telling us, I do great things because of the power and the example of God the Father. But if you put this verse in context with what Jesus is about to say and what he's already said, a different interpretation than that is required. Jesus' sentence says to us that the Savior is uniquely tied to and equal with God the Father. Jesus does nothing on his own. That is to say, there is never going to be a place in eternity where the will of the Father and the will of the Son can be at odds. Never will God the Father attempt to accomplish a thing that the Son is not perfectly in agreement with. Never will the Son of God do a thing that is not perfectly identically the will of the Father. Jesus only does things perfectly in line with what the Father does. Jesus only does things that please the Father because, dear friends, there's one will in God, and that will is shared by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Theologically, we know the Bible presents for us a God who is unique, There's only one God. You guys know that, right? Only one God? You're monotheistic in this room? Praise God for that. This one God eternally subsists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These persons are not parts or pieces of God. The three don't add up to equal God. Because God is not divisible into pieces or parts. Yet these three persons exist as the singular God over all things. God is one God, three persons, without division or confusion. What does that mean? The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. These persons are the one God The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, there is only one God. 
How are your brains right now? Again, a friend of mine likes to say, this is that moment where you feel like, remember when Microsoft Windows would crash and you get the blue screen that comes up and says, I've overloaded the, me- the memory? This is that moment for most human beings. Don't feel bad if you feel that way. God's greater than any of our imaginations could ever devise. And the infinite holy God is glorious and he is perfect and he has revealed him to, to us, himself to us in his word, one God, three persons, and we are faithful to the word of God when we accept that glorious truth, even if it's beyond our ability to fully comprehend. But if we understand the biblical doctrine, we'll see that the words of Jesus far from setting himself on a lower level than the Father, Jesus displays for us the perfect unity of the persons in the Holy Trinity. Jesus can do only what he sees his Father doing. Why? For Jesus to do something that's contrary to the will or the action of the Father would be for Jesus to be something divided out from the Holy Trinity and not a person of the Godhead. Again, I wish I could make this simple, but think about it. If Jesus is God, he can only do what God is doing, right? He can only do what he sees the Father doing because God is always united in God's being and God's will. God never acts in a way that is not God's will. God is never going against God. So the Son can only do what the Father does. Also remember, keep it in context. The Jewish teachers think Jesus has no right to tell somebody to carry a mat on the Sabbath. Jesus says, I'm working on the Sabbath just like my Father. The Jews are mad They're assuming Jesus is claiming to be Son of God the Father, making himself to be God. And Jesus doesn't do a single thing to try to dissuade them from that thought. Instead, Jesus says, obviously, I can only do what I see the Father do. So if God the Father gives life, and if God the Father holds the world together on the Sabbath, then Jesus, God the Son, does the very same thing. This fits together very well with what you see in the prologue of this book, look at John 1, verses 1, 14, and 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Down at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then 18, no one's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus is eternally God. Understand that. There's not a moment when the Son of God didn't exist. The Son of God is eternal. He is eternal. He's eternally God. He is with God the Father. He's at the Father's side. He is God in the flesh now. He is the Son of God, and there's only one God. So Jesus claims to be God. He claims not to be God the Father. He claims not to be God the Holy Spirit. 
but he claims to be perfectly in union with and alignment with God the Father. Jesus is God the Son, God in flesh. What do we do with information like that? Now again, like I said, first thing, if this hurts your brain, if you're like, I, don't, I can't get my mind all the way around it, I know. It is not, there is no paradox here. There is no breaking of logic. What it is, is our attempt to understand the infinite with finite minds. But what do we do? Right here, even before you see anything else in this passage, you've got to stop and think. If what Jesus just said is true, then Jesus is your God. Jesus must be your Lord, your master. You must worship Jesus. You must honor Jesus. You owe Jesus your life, your soul, your being. Only Jesus can give your life meaning and purpose. Believing Jesus is God, if you get it right, will lead you to center your whole life, your worship, your affections, and your hope on him and him alone. So when somebody starts saying to you something like, you sure do take that church thing you do pretty seriously, you can say, no, 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 I don't take the church thing I do very seriously. The church thing I do is my life because I worship Jesus. Now over the next several verses, you're going to see the word for, F-O-R, repeated several times. Verse 19, verse 20, 21, 22. We're going to get four separate reasons, four separate fours, that'll tell you why you've got to believe Jesus is the Son of God as we just described. So let's see a few ways that Jesus shows us he is claiming to be God and nothing less. Point number two. You still with me, by the way? Okay, I didn't want to lose you there. So point two. Jesus does what the Father does. That's point number two. Look at the end of verse 19. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So here's a thought that kind of fills in what I just said, right? Jesus says he does whatever the Father does. This is a claim to be God. Jesus is not saying, I mimic the basic morality of God. Jesus isn't saying, oh, you know, because God is love, I'm a loving person. No, Jesus is claiming to do the things that only the one true God can do. In healing the paralyzed man, Jesus supernaturally just pushed back the effects of the fall. That's a thing only God can do. In fact, Jesus did a thing that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, intended. The Son and the Father as the one God are united in their purpose and in their accomplished act. If you put that sentence from Jesus in somebody else's mouth, you'll see how radical the claim is, okay? Because if it didn't blow your mind, if I said to you, Hi, I'm Travis. I'm the pastor. I do everything God does. You see how that sounds a little awkward? Did any of y'all feel weird about that? So we're not going to put that on the church t-shirts, right? You would be very concerned if I said that. Why? 
Because I can't do everything the Lord does. I'm not God. But Jesus can. Jesus is God. If you study theology, sometimes you will see people list for you the attributes of God. Have you guys ever done an attributes of God Bible study? The attributes are often listed in two separate categories. We will talk in theology about the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. Communicable attributes of God. You guys know what the word communicable means, right? It's like a disease you can catch. It's communicable. It spreads. The communicable attributes of God are the things that you see in God that we can share in. God is loving. We can be loving. God is just. We can be just. God is wise. We can have wisdom. The incommunicable attributes of God are attributes that God possesses which you and I cannot possess. For example, God is ultimately perfectly independent. God's independence means that God relies on no one and no thing to make him exist. We will never be independent like that. We rely on God to to make us exist, and to keep us existing. God is unchanging, meaning that his perfection cannot increase or decrease. His being will never be altered. We change. We grow. Sometimes we get better. Sometimes we get worse. But God is eternal. God is unchanging. God has no beginning and no end. Think about this. You came into being. There was a time when you were not. God has no such time. When Jesus says he does whatever he sees his Holy Father do, he is claiming the ability and the nature of God. He's saying something far bigger than any mere man who's only a man can say. Jesus is claiming to be God. And as we said already, this is a gigantic claim. It should cause you either to hate Jesus or to love him with everything you've got. Third point. Jesus is loved by the Father and does miracles. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Now, this statement from Jesus tells us three things inside this statement. The Father loves Jesus, the Father shows Jesus everything he does, and the Father will show Jesus even greater things. Start with that first one, the claim of love. In general, that doesn't sound like a big deal, right? The Father loves me. Good. God loves his people. We know that. Many people could claim to be loved by God. But again, this is different In the context of claiming to be God in the flesh, Jesus claims to be the beloved of God. Y'all, this is either the most honest or the most dishonest statement ever made. If Jesus is wrong about or lying about being God, he's dead wrong about having the love of God. 
But if Jesus is, in fact, God the Son, he has the love of God in a very special way. Jesus also says the Father shows him everything he's doing. That is a stunning claim. You all know God does more in a millisecond than you will do in your lifetime. In a single moment, God keeps billions of hearts beating, holds trillions of stars and galaxies in place, spins the earth, causes cells to divide and reproduce and all kinds of microscopic stuff I don't understand. God feeds the deer in the woods. God makes the clouds bring rain. To say that God shows you everything he's doing requires that you have omniscience, infinite knowledge, and the ability to grasp and understand what no human being can grasp. How many of you are familiar with the book of Job? You all know some Job Job, as you may recall, went through some very hard circumstances. And as he suffered, Job came really close to accusing God of wronging him. Job demanded that God explain to him just why all these things are happening. God's response was to help Job understand that Job lacked the capacity to even begin to understand the great wisdom and perfect purposes of God. And so to help Job understand how big God is, how small Job is, God asked Job a series of more than 60 questions back to back to back to show the might and the wisdom of God as it compares to the limited might and limited powers of observation of a human. Isaiah helps us to see the vastness of God's wisdom compared to ours and our own abilities. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts? Y'all, how high do you assume the sky to be? And Jonah, I don't want some sort of Air Force answer. How far is it to the farthest star? Past that. The heavens are infinitely high above the earth. And God's thoughts and ways are that far bigger, greater than our own. And if that's true, what must you say about somebody who says, God shows me every single thing he does? You must see that that person is claiming the capacity to know all that God is doing. That person is claiming to be God. Thirdly, in this section, Jesus claims, greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. What's he mean greater works than these? 
The work of God that started this whole conversation was the miracle Jesus performed by healing the paralyzed man. Jesus is telling the religious teachers in the crowd, hey, I'm going to do miracles that are greater than the one you just saw. Jesus is going to perform mighty acts of God that will cause all who hear of them to marvel, to wonder, to worship him as God. But what must we say about one beloved of God, knowing all that God does, doing greater and greater works that only God can do? We must see him as God, glorious and worthy of our worship. Fourth point, Jesus has power over life and death. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. (laughs) Maybe when Jesus said, I'm going to do greater miracles, he starts talking to us about life, death, and resurrection. For a certainty, we know God is the only one with the power to give life. Don't we get that? Only God could create the universe. Only God can breathe life into a human body. We also know that, well, people die, right? You might not like thinking about it, but it is simply a fact. The death rate for humanity is 100%. Whether you're rich or poor, strong or weak, famous or obscure, In the end, you're going to face what some people would call the great equalizer. You face the grave. The people speaking to Jesus knew that in the Old Testament, there were few instances when God brought people back from the dead. They were rare displays of God's power. The people who were raised from the dead in the Old Testament eventually died again. But we saw that God has full power over death. If you look at scripture, you're going to see that God promises his faithful life beyond the grave. Even in the Old Testament. They know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to live again. They know King David has not gone out of existence. The Bible, even before Jesus came to earth to minister hinted at a day to come when people would rise from the grave. They would rise from the grave after death and they would have new bodies. Look at Job 19, verse 26. Job says, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. What's Job saying? My body's going to die, and I will see God in a new body. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. When we consider the concept of resurrection, a concept, we're going to look at it, by the way, a little bit more next week as well, Lord willing. We've got to grasp Only God can do this stuff. No, none of us can make a dead person live again. 
Not really, right? No doctor can really put life into a dead body. No philosopher can fit the soul of a person into a resurrection body. The idea of giving somebody life beyond the grave, eternal life, that is something we know only God can do. And if you keep that fact in mind, the words of Jesus in verse 21 are again jaw-dropping because Jesus says, I give life to whomever I will. Jesus will, by his choice, by his power, for his glory, bring people out of the grave. You know, the culminating miracle in the first half of the Gospel of John is found in chapter 11. And there you get the story of Lazarus, right? He was a friend of Jesus. He had been dead for four days before Jesus got there. And then Jesus shows up and with a single bit of command, a word of command, a sentence of command, says, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Jesus brings a dead man to life. And in doing so, Jesus proves what he just said. Jesus has power and authority over death and over resurrection. Jesus, he will defeat the grave. Y'all, human beings die because of the infection of the first human sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the curse included that we would die, that we would return to the dust from which we came. God decreed that consequence of sin because God was the one who had been sinned against. Listen to me. If God gives the decree of death for human rebellion against God, only God can lift that decree. Only God can defeat death. Only God has the power of resurrection. So again, we say this. Jesus is God. He is the God who defeats death. He beat death when he brought Lazarus out of the tomb. In the other gospels, Jesus beat death when he raised Jairus' daughter or the widow's son. And most gloriously in all four of the gospels, Jesus showed the power that he has over death when he himself walked out of his own tomb. Jesus is God and we must worship him. Point number five, Jesus is the eternal judge. Look at verse 22, 23. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You know, when you think about death and the grave, biblical thinkers think about the judgment. While many people may not know how it all works, many of us realize that when we die, we receive from God a judgment, a destination. You go to heaven or you go to hell when you die. The next claim Jesus makes here, an unmistakable claim to be God, is that Jesus says that he, by the decree of the Father, is the one who judges all humanity. Now, again, we all know Only God has the right to say whether a soul belongs with him under his grace or in hell under his wrath forever. No way can any mere man be the judge of all humanity. So here, when we see Jesus claim to be the eternal judge of all, we see Jesus claim to be a thing that only God is. God is one God, three persons, united in will and act. From one perspective, we can simply say that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, does all that God does. 
Like, who saves you when you're saved? God, right? Did the Father save you? Yes. Did the Son save you? Yes. Did the Holy Spirit save you? Yes. God saved you. Who created? Did the Father create? Did the Son create? Was the Spirit creating? Yeah. It's, it's a God thing. God, God, God creates. God saves. God judges. But from another perspective, we see that as the persons of the Trinity relate to one another, they accomplish these acts of God uniquely. In salvation, salvation is from the Father who sends the Son. Salvation is through the Son who has been sent by the Father. And salvation is applied to us and brought to us by the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And right here, the Father grants that judgment from the Father is going to be accomplished through Jesus the Son as the judge of all humanity. And verse 23 says, Why? It's so that all will give Jesus the very same honor they give to God the Father. The honor to honor Jesus is to honor God the Father. To dishonor Jesus is to dishonor God the Father. And in case it is not an obvious thing to grasp, anybody who says, if you honor me, you honor God, that's a person claiming to be God. This is worthy of expansion in, a, in thought, right? It is certainly worth responding to. We're going to get that last thought in our final point. Point uh, number six. I stopped being able to count. It is six, right? Help me. Okay. Believe in Jesus to be right with God. Point number six. Believe in Jesus to be right with God. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So here we wrap it up for today, guys, with the second double truly of the discourse. Jesus is giving us a summary to think about. Yes, he's claimed to be united with God, doing what God does, beloved of God, doing the miracles of God, having the power of God over life and death, to be the God who judges all humanity. What in the world do you do with a guy that claims that? Jesus tells you, hear him and believe him. Believe God the Father. He's the God who sent Jesus. The Father and the Son are telling you the very same thing. They're telling you, come to Jesus for life. Come to Jesus or you don't get life. The one who believes in Jesus does not face a judgment of destruction. The one who believes in Jesus does not face a judgment of condemnation. Aren't you glad to hear that, friends? Instead, the one who comes to Jesus passed from being in a state of death that would last forever to being in a state of life that will last forever. Next week, we'll look at a little bit more of that concept of judgment and eternal life and resurrection because that comes up in the next few verses. But for now, let me just ask this question. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Will you honor Jesus as God? Will you trust in Jesus for your soul's salvation? Hear me very well. If you will not come to Jesus and ask Jesus for life, you dishonor God and you say that you would rather face his judgment. 
Remember this, Jesus, the Jesus that you reject is the one who says he will be your judge. You say to Jesus, I will not receive your mercy. You are also declaring to Jesus, I demand Jesus, you do justice on me. And justice from Jesus on your sinful life would cast you into hell forever. But if you'll trust in Jesus, if you'll yield to his lordship, if you'll ask Jesus for mercy, you will find life. The very Jesus whose mercy you've gotten under will be your judge. Doesn't that sound good? Jesus died to pay for the sins of everyone he'll save. So Jesus can say of everyone who comes to him for mercy, I have paid your debt in full. Dear friends, come to Jesus, find his mercy today, and if you already know Jesus, honor him, worship him as truly God the Son. Let's pray together. Lord God, this is heavy stuff for finite brains. And God, I pray that we won't bog down too much in the minutiae but that we will love the beauty and that we will embrace the truth of who you are. God, I pray you'll save souls. I pray you will forgive sinners. I pray you will grant us to rejoice in this Christ, this God in flesh who has come to be our Savior. God, have mercy. God, Fill us with awe. Help us to be astonished that before your very throne is the King of Kings who would plead our case. Oh God, you are glorious. Help us now just respond to you rightly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.